0: Chapter 14. We are going to finish what we started, I think, back in November and then hit the detour on signs and wonders on purpose. And so in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his discussion, his discourse on tongues and prophecy. Particularly, he's dealing with prophecy, excuse me, the tongues and and the a uh, tendency of the Corinthian church to find ways in which it can advertise its own spirituality. And it's, it's easy to look at the Corinthian church and condemn them and think of them as immature, but uh, boy, I know my own pride, and perhaps you can resonate with this, can often find ways to wave a flag and call attention to what you do for Jesus. And, and it shouldn't surprise us that the New Testament church shows us very much like what we can be and how we can struggle in terms of um, the assembly. So we come to chapter 14. I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 1, but the focus of our, our study tonight is going to be ch- uh, verses 26 through 30, Oh, what is it, I guess uh, through 40. Uh, but let me begin reading in verse 1. Remember, he's talking about the regulation of how to speak in tongues, how to interact with tongues, and so... I think it'll do us good to read the whole entire section. Scripture says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Let me just identify two thoughts here that I think are important. Prophecy and tongues are related, but prophecy is superior because it's understandable. Tongues is given in a foreign language as evidence of God's work, but unless it's interpreted and understood, 1 Corinthians 14, I just read verses 1 through 5. Um, no one, if no one's able to understand the tongue it does no one any good God alone understands and the point isn't therefore God understands you're speaking to him in some personal good prayer language the point is who can know what you're saying except God alone therefore the only one who might be getting any benefit is God's direct praise from you and so of course he says I want everyone to speak in prophecy more than tongues because prophecy is understandable to the church alright verse 6 now Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning which would indicate tongues, is never without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. For, excuse me, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And, of course, it's 10,000 words in an unknown tongue, is this point, right? Tongues that are unintelligible or uninterpreted do no good to the church. The church is given gifts for the good of the church. And so, therefore, he's invalidating the use of public tongues with no interpretation. Verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the law is written, By people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people And even they, then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsider or unbeliever enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, and he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. All right. There's a mouthful there, but hopefully you guys got the gist of it. Paul is not forbidding the use of tongues. He is regulating it and clarifying it and describing it. So we're going to begin in verse 26, kind of concluding the text. And really what he's doing is talking about order and worship, right? He's talking about order in the assembly. Okay, we've dealt with spiritual gifts, chapter 12. Spiritual gifts are given for the strengthening of the body. Chapter 13, love is the primary, let's say, engine and purpose for for doing what we do in the church, if you if you speak with the wisdom and the knowledge of God but don't have love, how useful is it? Right, it's 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 not worthwhile. It's like a clanging symbol, right? If you give your body so that you can boast, or or, or give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, it accounts to nothing. Love is the thing that energizes the use of gifts, and, and so it goes along with chapter thir- or Excuse me, chapter twelve. The purpose of, of gifts is to build up the, the church. That's why it's an expression of love, chapter 13. Chapter 14, that's why he calls upon the church to, to desire prophecy above tongues, because prophecy ends up encouraging people because they can understand it. Tongues comes with the manifestation of speaking in a foreign language, but if I'm speaking to you in almost any other language besides English, what are you getting? Nothing. I mean, maybe some of you know Spanish, so. Uh, a, a portion of you, if I, if I had the gift of speaking tongues and had Spanish, a portion of you could get encouragement. But that would, that would then require you to interpret, someone to interpret for the rest of the church body to get the benefit. And so this is happening in Corinth where people are speaking in unknown languages, um, unknown to the rest of the church, and for them it is just as beneficial as Babel, as gobbledygook. It just does not have content, or Paul would say Because I'm speaking this with my mind, um, because I'm speaking without my mind, it's of no good. I'd rather speak five words with my mind. He's saying with intellectual truth backing it. Um, I, I think there's an application, if I can just hit this on, like praise music. Praise music that makes you feel good but is theologically vacuous is nonsense, right? Like worship is intellectually honest. It is doctrinally sound or it's trash. Right, like that, that's his point, isn't it? That if, if music makes you feel good, but it doesn't say anything, you've done nothing of consequence. You're like the babbling person here that speaks tongues. Propositional truth is required for good worship. I'm getting a clear question in your face, Amy. Do you want to ask the question? <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting there, so... Speak now while you have a free conscience. (laughs) Okay. Well, you're welcome to ask a question. Um, Obviously, a little less formal on Sunday nights. But we we get into order in the church here in verses 26 through 33. I'm just going to highlight nine statements I think are helpful for us in thinking through what he's saying about tongues, particularly. And then I, I think you can make some bridges into our modern context. First, if you look in verse 26, uh, the use of gifts is only done for what purpose? Building others up, not personal glory. Right? It is inappropriate to ever use your gift for personal glory. Per, the spiritual gifts are given to strengthen someone else spiritually. I think this is also like, if we're going to hit some some clear connections, this is one of the ways people who who are truth speakers can often violate this principle. You know, the person who says, "Well, I just call an ace and an ace and a spade and a spade." and then they just blast you and discourage you, they're doing it wrong. That's inexcusable. Gifts should build others up. Number two, verse 27, the beginning of it. How many people could speak in a tongue in any given assembly? Two, or at the very most, three. In other words, any time you have more than three people speaking in tongues, you're sinning. I don't know how to get around that. Like, at the end of the passage, he's like, hey, if, if you or anyone else thinks otherwise... And you disregard what I'm saying, you are to be disregarded. And I don't think he's being saying ignored. I think he's saying you are outside of God's grace. Like it's a significant um, pushback he gives on the people who violate this principle. And principle number three, there needs to be organization each in turn. Look in verse 27, the middle of verse 27. Isn't that what he says? Um, if anyone speak a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most and each in turn. In other words, the whole church should be listening to the person speaking in tongues, and it should be done in such a way they're not over-talking one another. Principle number four, there must be interpretation or silence is mandated. If no one is there to interpret, shut your mouth. Which means you probably need to do prep, right? Like if, if your gift is speaking Farsi, you might need to find out if anyone else can interpret. And if no one can, then you have a requirement to keep your trap closed. All right? Principle number five. People are to weigh what is being said by prophets. Look in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And I realize I skipped one there. I'll come back to it in a moment. Um, but... but it. No one's revelation, no one's gift from God to speak a word is to be taken without evaluation and critique. And I would assume this means systematics. Does this align with the rest of Scripture? Does this align with what God has already revealed to us? The test for an Old Testament prophet, if they spoke and it was contrary to God's already delivered revelation, they were to be stoned. The assumption within the church and I'm a little unclear on whether or not it's only prophets, but I'm going to take it as primarily prophets and the whole church is to weigh it. I don't know if you caught that. Because the way it's written, it could say prophets are to weigh other prophets. But at the least, it seems like primarily prophets and the whole congregation is to evaluate and critique what is being said. Also, it's not just tongues. Prophets, two or three at the most. Right? Like even, even if there's a new word of prophecy... You still have a limit and a defined number of people who can speak. Principle number seven, then. The Spirit gives new revelation while the gathering is happening. That has priority over old revelation. It's kind of an interesting point he makes in verse 30. Look at that with me. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first one be silent. So I'm giving a prophecy, and it's something the Lord has revealed to me on Tuesday. And while I'm giving that prophecy, Allie gets a prophecy while sitting in her seat. She presumably would stand up and say, hey, the Lord has given me a word here now. I would sit down and be quiet and defer to Allie to give her prophecy. <laughs> Just judging by the look on her face, she wouldn't do it. <laughs> like, nope, I would be quiet. I would hold my silence. Um, but I, I think the point is that, that perhaps the Lord is, particularly moving in that assembly, to say something to them in the moment, and that should be something that the whole church defers to. All right? Number eight, verse 32. Prophets are able to govern the revelation and the spontaneity or the speech, and I think this would apply to tongues as well. Um, Look in verse uh, 31 and 32. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The point is ecstatic speech, spontaneous shouting, interrupting one another, going out of turn are, are not in line with the work of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit does not override our spirits so that we are out of control and chaos is happening. In fact, if the Holy Spirit gives me revelation, I am able to hold on to that, to wait my turn, to speak when I should speak and not to interrupt another, not to overspeak each in a turn, And to wait, and if there's more than three that have already spoken, not speak until next week. Now, when I look at the modern charismatic crazy churches, right, there's a whole spectrum. So when I say crazy churches, I'm talking about the churches where everyone's bouncing around and shouting and hooting and hollering. And I read this text, there is so little in common with what Scripture demands and the events of that church that I think we can all safely say, not only is it incorrect, it's wicked. It's rebellious. Because here's the Bible's clear, explicit teaching on what should be happening. It's being violated rampantly in that type of church. Granted, on that spectrum, there are churches that are very careful and thoughtful and obey all of these commands. I still disagree with them on the thought that I think tongues and prophecy have ceased. But they're very careful to limit themselves, to not have more than a few people speak. When they speak, it's very um, ordered and organized and controlled. So not every church should be thrown under the crazy bus. But can we just acknowledge the crazy bus condemns, like it's condemned in this text. Um, Number nine, worship and the assembly need to conform to God's character. Look at the end of verse 33, or actually just verse 33 in general. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then if you come down to verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. I think the point is, God is a God of peace and order, therefore the church should be a place of Peace and order. And and again, uh, just going broad, worship principle when worship music, when worship styles, when organization of the church rejects an orderly, organized, peace filled assembly, it actually is denying the very character of God and displeasing Him. I would say, thereby, all music, all prayer should align to God's character. It should be reverent, it should be thoughtful, it should celebrate with thanksgiving and joy the work of Christ, because this is who our God is. Worship should reflect our God. And worship that is, is dissonant, to use a musical term, with God's character is not acceptable. Uh, so let's make sure that, that even as we think through worship on a Sunday morning where we're not even thinking about prophecy or tongues per se, that our worship aligns to the character of God as it's revealed in Scripture. Always. Period. All right. So that's how it's to be organized. Tongues and prophecy are organized within the church. And then we come to this fascinating verse that Amy's already brought up. Women are to be silent. What is going on here? As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. So what in the world is going on here? Uh, there are a couple different ideas, and I think <clears throat> some of them, I think one that, that on the outset um, needs to be dealt with is, does this condemn women from speaking in any sense within the church? Because it seems to, right? So let's look at, at 1 Corinthians 11. Just go back. Look in verse 5 with me. <clears throat> What does verse 5 tell us about the women in the church? Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who's her head? Her husband. I'm talking about her, her noggin. It's talking about her husband. So every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since, it's a, a, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, notice the point. It's not any woman who prays or prophesies is acting shamefully. It's shamefully only if her head is what? Uncovered. What seems to be the implication that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church? What are the ladies doing? Apparently they're publicly praying and publicly prophesying, and they're not condemned for that. They're condemned for doing it in such a way that shows dishonor to their husbands. Or maybe I could say, rejects male headship in the home. Now, I I think that's helpful on, on... On two fronts, it's being brought into the passage in in chapter 14. One is, I think we have to have a theology that recognizes women praying or prophesying in public, according to chapter 11, isn't sin. And somehow that has to align with chapter 14 that says women should be silent. So one of the thoughts is that, that particularly married women or women in reference to their husbands need to be silent because of chapter 11. I don't think that's the right take. I don't think chapter 14 necessarily jams the thought of wives into the context of women being silent. I'm not sure exactly how that would fit anyway. Um, I, I will tell you, John MacArthur rejects that um, chapter 11 implies prayer or public speaking. Apparently, his take would be that women should not talk at all in church. Um, I, I don't think that's, that's a reasonable um, interpretation of chapter 11. Rather, I think this, this verse would indicate, chapter 11, would indicate women should be able to pray, and if the gift of prophecy were continuing, they should be able to prophesy within the church context. I think the better way to take this is to come back to chapter 14, go back to verse 29. He says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, if he's built a case that women can prophesy, and women are to be part of the church, And so let's just imagine that I give a prophecy and Charity evaluates that prophecy and says, yeah, that's not good. She is asking me to submit to her evaluation. Now that's a headship problem because I'm married and I'm her husband and I'm her head and she's telling me what to do in the public assembly. I think that would be a very explicit violation of this text. I think the more implicit one would be, I think any lady, Weighing a prophecy and calling the church to interpret it and to to move forward against the prophecy is taking an act of leadership. And so I I think the essence of this prohibition here is in the context of what it means to weigh a prophecy or a tongue, that the the ladies of the church are forbidden from making authoritative announcements that others would be um, subject to. Does that make sense? So I, I wrote it out more thoroughly for you, and I'm referring to a, an article there by Denny Burke. I, I think, I, I didn't look it up, but I think he's actually the pastor of the church that wrote in my place. Um, so if you look at what I wrote, um, I, um, I think it's probably the back of your papers now, I think. A woman who judges a prophecy is, in essence, calling the church to submit to her evaluation of the prophet. If it is her husband, she's asking him to submit to her evaluation this trampling God's ideal for male headship in the home, which is on display in the church. Perhaps a relevant application would be the act of a woman to ask a public question that rebuts the teacher or challenges him publicly or asks a question that she's using to teach with. I think all of those would be violations of this principle. So have you ever heard someone ask a question where they're actually teaching? Think in the corporate context, that's wrong. I think it's pretty clear from both this text and 1 Timothy 2. Um, Leading, judging, weighing are in fact declared to be shameful. Catch that? Shameful. Right? Isn't that what the scripture says? Let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak In church now again in the context of this text the idea is leading or instructing or rebutting bill are you going to open the can of worms further and just like go ahead (laughs) pretty much it feels like a huge like loophole So, I think the best equivalent to prophesying would be just the simple recording of revelation. So, I think it would be tantamount in today's, I actually, say, I think I say this, of reading scripture. So, when, like, let's just use Julie since she's sitting right next to you so submissively. Um, if Julie were to stand up and read scripture, is God giving us revelation? Yes, and and in a sense, God's revelation is being given, if I'm going to put it in a more passive sense, right? I I don't think Julie in any way is taking to herself authority because she is merely reciting. So that would be my understanding of like chapter 11, is that these ladies are not actually applying or exhorting the church. Rather, they're strictly giving prophecy. I, I just don't know how else to take 1 Timothy 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11, and not have them in contradiction to one another. So, so my thought would be, authoritative declarations are a violation of headship. That's why I think instructing, in the, I mean, that's, that's literally what it says in 1 Timothy 2, right? That a woman should not teach. I, I don't think it's saying women should, should never have truth. I think the point is, is reading Scripture is not teaching Scripture. Public prayer is not teaching. It's a public supplication to God or public praise of God. So again, I think, we, I think we ought to be careful. I think we live in a culture that's so equal rights driven that if we're not cautious, our culture is telling us what to think rather than Scripture. Well, since I regret things I've taught in this church or said at times, I would hope that you wouldn't just leave the church if you disagreed. But <clears throat> let, let me finish reading. I think it might be helpful a little bit. I may not quite answer that question, but at least it will lay out for you all that I say. Um, so I, I say, <clears throat> leading, judging, weighing are shameful for a woman in the public assembly because these acts violate male headship rather than expressing submission and headship appropriately. Rather, if she has a concern, she should speak privately to her husband or to some other appropriate person. I, I, think it's, I think it's okay. Again, imagine the context in which we have some women who can prophesy. And the Holy Spirit's whispering to them, uh-uh, that was not good. I think Scripture's telling them, you can't say that in the assembly. That, that to do wrong, to violate headship, in order to do right, correct, correct the public teaching, is something you still don't do. Rather, you privately speak to your husband— And I would say this, I think there are men in leadership in almost any given church who can be talked to privately if you don't have a husband. And it doesn't even have to be the speaker. Like, how how many men in our church could you talk to if you're a lady and you feel like there has been some inappropriate teaching in a class where maybe there was no godly man who heard? I mean, it'd be easy to get to two dozen talked to them and said hey so i'm pretty sure we just heard a gospel of works in junior church that most most of the men in our church who have that capacity would want to hear that and would want to pursue a good understanding of what happened in our kids church that violated the gospel and so i think there'd be an appropriate way to do that that would not be taking authority but m- rather helping the church to weigh the declarations of god and find people in contradiction to it. Again, let me, let me finish reading the rest of it, but I think that might be a helpful to answer, is there's appropriate people, there's men in the church that should speak to other men. Because women are permitted to prophesy and publicly pray during corporate worship in 1 Corinthians 11, um, I, I know that's not a full sentence, so let me just assume that's cop there. And since prophecy has ceased, the giving of revelation may be equated to scripture reading, which is also permissible for women to do during public gatherings of the church. Now, I, I would grant you, if we had a woman get up on Sunday morning and read the Scripture, many of you would be uncomfortable. I, I, I guess I don't care. I, that's not my question is what makes us feel comfortable. I think if a woman can prophesy, in other words, if she can publicly record God's revelation, give a record of it, then for a woman to publicly read Scripture and declare the record of revelation that's already been delivered, is not actually taking up authority and violating this principle. We can decide what's the best way to minister to our culture not distract or not cause unnecessary questions. And so maybe we won't have a woman reading Scripture or maybe we will have a re- uh, Scripture uh, reader who's a woman. But, but I don't think that matters. I think Scripture gives us that permission. That's, all, that's what I'm claiming. You notice I say marks applications? <clears throat> I say that partly not that I'm not declaring the new rules for Crossway here. I'm partly just saying, listen, I realize... I realize you might disagree with me. I think you're incorrect, but I want to be careful that I make that personal. I don't, I don't want to say I have this all figured out. I think this is correct. I'm pretty confident in that, but I think the applications are a little more secondary. Women are prohibited from teaching, leading, and publicly questioning or rebutting men in the context of the assembly. Women should not teach. They should not lead over men in the church gathering. This does not man- mean that teaching a Bible class at a Christian university is sin for a woman. But the context of male headship is the home, and it's expressed in the local church. So, generally, I would, if I if I was leading that university, I probably wouldn't have women teaching Bible because ultimately most men are in that Bible class in order to train to be pastors. So I probably wouldn't just because it's weird, and it feels like it's it's giving women ultimately influence over the church because they're teaching pastors. But I think. I just want to be careful not to say more than Scripture says. So that's kind of why I threw that one in there. I don't think directly it's sin. I just probably wouldn't do it. All right. Before I I walk away from the can of worms, now that I've like opened it up and there's worms crawling all over, anyone want to identify and ask a question? That's helpful. Brendan? Well, so, so let me answer this ungraciously and Graciously. Graciously is I think they would, they would do this, and this is really too gracious. They would do to this verse what I would do to greet each other with a holy kiss. Don't kiss me. Please don't. I will push you away in Christian love. Um, I, I think we recognize a verse like that is, is contextual and the culture of the day. Like if I went to Europe and they kissed me, I wouldn't push them away, but I still wouldn't like it. If I was a missionary in Italy, I'd probably get over it. I probably actually learned to do the kissy-kissy thing on cheek cheek and be like, ah. At some point, I might get used to it and actually be offended if someone didn't do that to me. But culture means a lot with these things. And so, so I think we could recognize culture actually influences how I engage people within a culture. And scripturally, I think we could take the principle of greet each other with a holy kiss and say, God is actually expecting his church to express affection and joy in seeing one another. And to do less than that is not godly. Like, I think I could say that pretty strongly, but I don't think I express joy and affection with Phil Eli by giving him a kiss. <laughs> Neither Phil or I would be comfortable. <laughs> and, and we recognize cultural gap there, right? And we recognize that I can principalize it and not violate scripture. I think I think at best that's what people do. The problem is, and you'll see this a little later, these are our are ripped out of the category of context and culture and built over the whole church of christ for all ages and so i think there's an artificial appeal to culture so you ask how that's how and that's how they do it with good conscience let me be a little more clear though i think historically this is one of those dividing lines by people who are faithful to christ and those who are not this is generally speaking one of those dividing lines between churches that are liberal and I mean that not in like politically right and left, I mean that by those who are giving up sound doctrine, giving up the belief in the miracles and the supernatural works of God in the scriptures. They're giving up those things, they're giving up the inerrancy of scripture, and they're beginning to make it putty in the hands of man. And generally, that's actually one of the, um, the kind of the litmus tests, the, the, the bellwether questions. One of them is um, gender distinction and sexuality. And so gender distinction like this is often kind of one of those bellwether decisions. If a church has women pastors, it's usually on a path of unrecoverable liberalism, usually. So when you come back from college and, like, I'm going to this church and there's a woman pastor, I usually think that's a bad church going bad places. I hope you get out of there. But they might be good today. Like, they might be okay today. It's probably a better way. Good is probably too strong. Okay. Does that help you, Brendan? But I think the how, understanding they usually argue culture. All right any other uh Dennis, you had a question <laughs> well uh, you also have deborah i mean like you have you have women in, throughout all of scripture that in, in fact Yudi and Sintiki, fellow laborers in the gospel right there these are ladies these are women names um i i think i think w- because of what I just said about it's being a bellwether issue that a lot of churches have kind of an aversion to women in leadership because they, they want to be so far back from the edge of, of um, caving to culture that they cripple the ministry of ladies and, and they really confine it too much. I, I think we can get to giving the gospel, instructing unbelievers, um, declarations of prophetic material, and, and recognize that within Scripture, all of that, it seems even personal discipleship with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, that, that in the context of ministry in the home, it wouldn't surprise me that someone at Mike and Liz's, a man at Mike and Liz's, is hearing Liz and Mike instruct, and I, I wouldn't feel the need to rebuke Liz. I think we're talking about the context of the corporate gathering or the corporate work, right? So, so I mean, there's sometimes corporate work happening when the whole church is not gathered, um, so so I, I think we should be careful that we don't uh, cut women off at the knees and not let them minister in the church as independent agents redeemed by God's grace and saved before the Lord and ministers of the Lord's grace. So hopefully that's helpful. Anyone else? Yes, Lena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great question. Okay, so let's, let's take leadership into maybe two categories. I think it would help, be helpful. There's truth leadership. Like what I'm doing right now is I'm instructing. In fact, I basically told everyone in this church that it's sin for ladies to ask questions where they're teaching from their chairs. That's a pretty authoritative declaration. I think it's right on biblically. I don't think a music leader should do that if she's a lady. So that's one of the reasons I really enjoy having Phil and Caleb and other men up there is I don't feel that anxiety when they say, you know, I would just like to, <laughs> when a lady does that, if she's leading songs, I'm like, oh, don't. <laughs> like, like, I just, like, I get all sorts of nervous, because she might say, I just want to call your attention to this song and really pay attention to it. That's, like, a, even that, think what she's doing. She's telling all of us to do something. I'm okay with it when it's music. I'm not okay with it when it's instructional, right? Because, and, and so that's a blurry thing. Generally speaking, I think the better way to handle that for us is not to have ladies leading music and freelancing off of the plan. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's wrong for a lady to lead the music, to be singing, to, to be um, the organizational voice. But I do think it's wrong for her to instruct. So that's, that's where, <clears throat> like, <clears throat> I can imagine, let's say, Phil's sick and Kristen's singing and there's no Phil there. I'm sure she would really like to have Caleb or someone on the cajon to back her up, and she would like to not be the voice speaking. <laughs> I'm not wrong, am I, Kristen? he um, just had that deference to making sure that we have males leading. But again, it's, it's not wrong for a lady to, to, be the, to be the one that's doing the order of service, like moving us through the order of service and singing vocally. So, Again, that's, that might be one of the like, scripture readings uncomfortable for us. You have this morning, instead of <clears throat> foo, we had a lady get up. Let's say Lindsay got up and read the scripture. I, I think there would be quite a few people that would be like, is that okay? Yes. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm just telling you, I guarantee if we had had it happen this morning, if Lindsay had gotten up there and read the scripture, I'd have had like four people after the service and be like, so. I noticed there's a lady reading scripture. Clearly you're okay with that right like it's like like they lead into those questions really gently but i guarantee you, i would have had people that would flag it and some of you're like yeah me but i think i think biblically it is okay the reason i would generally not do that is not to have distractions or or to have that confusing message of women teaching in our church so again angel it, it would not bother me to have you stand up and read scripture frankly on a sunday night that's a lot more likely to happen Gift of knowledge, I just knew. Um, All right, any other questions before we move on? All right, hopefully that helped you guys understand. I think that's actually a little tricky text, but I think in the context where he's just said before, uh, these prophecies need to be weighed, that's actually a fairly powerful authority, and so I think he's cautioning ladies from recognizing their place even when Scripture, excuse me, when the church is doing what's righteous. That is evaluating and determining what God has said that ladies ladies have a particularly special way in which they honor the Lord by deferring and showing honor to the male leadership in the church and in the home. Let me let me finish this up, and then I want to spend some time in prayer with you all before we, we conclude this evening. Verse 36, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? What do you think he's saying? Do you think you get to make the rules, Corinth? Do you think uh, you have some special... Um, corner on how we do this thing. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In Garland's commentary, he indicates that means he is not approved by God. Like that is a serious indictment. In other words, if you reject God's word, God rejects you. And so he is putting a massive and emphatic statement at the end of this text. If you reject the teaching on his tongues and prophecy, that's the last last three chapters, he concludes by saying, God has been so clear, this is from God. You should know it's from God. And if you reject it being from God, God rejects you. Pretty powerful statement that he concludes with. And he says, This is, um, excuse me, so my brothers earnestly desire prophecy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. Do you catch a priority there? Let me say that again earnestly desire prophecy, but don't forbid tongues. Clearly prophecy, he is saying, is a thing the whole church should pursue. Tongues is to be permitted. And so he is saying prophecy is to be honored, it's to be treasured, it's to be expected. And again, remember Corinth is is a church that doesn't have hardly any of your New Testament. They don't have hardly any of it. As far as I know, they would have almost zero instruction on baptizing new believers. They have almost zero instruction on how to organize deacons. <laughs> like, they, they just don't have that. So God is giving them prophets as, as somewhat of a stopgap until the whole New Testament document can be established as God's word. And that doesn't happen for 40 years after this book is written, 45 years after this book is written. So, so, so prophecy is this bridge that allows the church to exist and organize and obey God and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to, how to walk in this church in a way that honors the, the, the Lord of the church, the head of the church, without having the full New Testament documents that we have. I think that's a significant point sometimes we miss. So brothers earnestly desire prophecy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And it clear, clearly we can take that one home. So, The Corinthian Corinthian church is not alone. Their sense of their habits and application should be understood, and they should use other churches as a helpful guide in what is right and good. Spirituality is evidenced by submission to God's word. They should earnestly desire God's clear revelation before they pursue the flamboyant and less profitable types of revelation. God is a God of order, so his worship should be ordered. All right. Any last final questions, comments? Teresa. Hold on, I got to get back into chapter 14. So she is she is asking, well, could you could you ask the question again loudly? I I think I understood your question, but I'm cloudy enough. I want to make sure I hear it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I believe it is saying two different things. One is. That the prophecies are to have the prophets are to have their prophecies weighed or evaluated, and and again you have passages like was uh, it First John four test the spirits to see whether they be of God, like there is a concern that false revelation, false spirits, demons themselves could influence the church by false prophecies. We see very clearly that it ends up being a threat in the Book of Revelation, isn't it? That there's a false prophet who who speaks profound claims. And so the church has always got to be in guard against false claims of truth, and, and so they're the way the prophets. They're the way what was said and evaluate it and respond appropriately to it. But I think verse thirty-two, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, indicates that um, they have the ability to manage the way in which they speak in the church. That they're not they're not losing control. Um, you see it once or twice in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Saul? Was overcome by the spirit of prophecy and was like fell down and was prophesying was out of control. Okay, I got a couple head shaking. If you read your Bible through every year, you read some weird stuff and sometimes you're like, oh, okay, moving on. I have no idea what to do with that. That would be one of those texts where King Saul gets the spirit of prophecy, and it's like it like controls him rather than him controlling it. I think the point is that God's spirit is a spirit who leaves the human able to manage and express in a godly way the revelation given to him, he is not overtaken by the spirit of prophecy. Rather, the spirit of prophecy is under control of his spirit. Okay, I think that's verse 32. I think it's distinctly different from the previous verse that asked for us to evaluate the content of the prophecy. Does that help? Okay, good. All right, any, any yes, Kristen? Maybe you should. No. Um, um, So let me just give a, a quick survey of chapter 11 in like 30 seconds, and hopefully it'll help you. In in the Corinthian church, they have thrown off the symbol of submission to their husbands when they took off their head coverings. And it may be that they thought something like, in the Lord, there's neither male nor female, free or slave, Greek or barbarian. You know, they may have thought something like that, or I guess it's Jew or Greek. Um, They may have thought something like that. It's like, hey, we're equal in the Lord, therefore no head coverings. And so they take off the shawl or whatever it would have been for the head covering. The Apostle Paul presses back. That symbol of submission to your husband is actually something God values because he values that submission of a wife to her husband. And the symbol then communicates that submission. So when you take off the communication of that submission, you're declaring to the world you don't submit to your husband, that's a shameful thing. And so, when you pray or prophesy in the church of God, and you have this kind of communication of lack of submission, that that's a shameful thing. That's a, that's a dishonorable thing, and and it's just as maybe embarrassing and shameful as should be to shave your head bald, as to go without a head covering. And if their um, children of their culture, like Timothy, seems to indicate than wearing a head covering, gold plating on your hair. These things were symbols of beauty. So to shave your head would be a travesty, probably even much more than today. Probably significantly more than today. So, yeah, so I would say it's, like, the covering was a symbol of submission that they were rejecting for whatever reason within their churches. Paul says, get those coverings back on. So, I don't think anyone today is making the argument that head coverings show submission. When I see a lady at Walmart with a doily on her head, I think, oh, she's some strange religious group. I don't think, oh, she must really obey her husband. Right? It just doesn't mean submission in our culture. It means fringe religious belief. And so I, I think that, again, culture does matter there. Symbols matter, right? I mean, if I wear a swastika on my T-shirt, the symbol means a lot. Not good, right? So I think the same thing is true. I, I, okay. I could read 1 Corinthians 11 with that idea of symb- symbolism and say it's sin for a believer to wear a swastika in today's culture because it has such a communication of anti-gospel hate that it would be contrary to God's gospel of grace and love and affection for me to publicly advertise that, that symbol. Likewise, taking off the head covering was a uh, uh, declaration of not not enjoying meal headship of rejecting it. Okay, so did that help, Kristen? Okay, so to pray and prophesy without the symbol—bad news. Yes, Travis. That's a great question. Uh, I think First Timothy makes it clear it's over men. I think that's actually the, uh, the subtle implication of this text that when men prophesy for women to evaluate his prophecy is actually. To take authority over him and, and to do it in the public context is wrong. So, no, I don't think that includes children. I'm not about to call Haddon a man, although he's probably getting close, you know, at some point. And, and usually for me, um, and maybe this isn't, I need to look into this a little more because it, it may just be a default mechanism rather than me thinking clearly. But I've usually taken that bar mitzvah where a, a Jewish boy became um, accountable to the law as a significant cultural step to manhood that we should generally respect. So my pastoral line has always been right around 7th to ninth grade when they go from being a boy to being at least the place where we shouldn't put women over them teaching them. So generally speaking, I would never have a lady youth pastor um, as something that I would be okay with as, as the lead pastor. Um, I'd be a little more gentle to other churches fudging that because it's not a – like when they define the line of man, I can give them a little bit of room on, but at some point, especially if they're married, they're men. Um, I, I think that's pretty pretty cut and dried. There, time. Yes, Emily. Sure. Yeah, I would encourage though the ladies of our church who have um, older men sons, to be very thoughtful that you are. You are a woman, and they are a man. So, to so be careful, chew them out at home. <laughs> I mean, but even there, I mean, I don't know. My my wife, I think, is thoughtful about how she exercises authority. Um, you you treat your older children differently than you do your littles, right? I don't sit down and dialogue with Solomon. I do with Sidney. So, all right. Any last questions? I, I'm trying to land this whole text. Like, like, in the sense that I want to finish up the questions, because this is actually one of those topics, both women, but particularly tongues and prophecy and the signs and wonders stuff, that has weight in our culture because we see a lot of churches who have a lot of things good but are getting some of these things wrong. And so I don't want to move on so quickly that you're like, "Oh, that would have been." I really wanted to know. Any last ones? Okay, you gonna speak to me afterwards, right? Especially you single ladies. No, I I don't want to stifle good learning. I, I think that's one of the tensions we have as a church is very open to questions, but I, I do think the um, the concern that we be very careful to honor what God tells us to honor, and to me that that's helpful with the home stuff because. I mean, we all know that many of us, the smartest person in the home is not the guy, right? The most godly person in the home is often not the husband. That doesn't change the responsibility of the home for the man to lead. And I I think that's where we can sometimes get sideways. Colleen? I think women teaching women is fantastic. I think of guys listening. So it wouldn't offend me. Like if we have some ladies in our church who are like, hey, Mark, I'm really trying to get good at teaching. Can you come and listen to me teach? I wouldn't be like, wait, you are trying to have authority over me and teach me. I'd be like, yeah, sure, as your pastor, I'd love to help you figure out how you can get good at using the gifts God has given to you. So, so I think there's a context in which women teaching women that there might be men who listen in for whatever reason. I think that's okay. It's not the woman trying to stand as an authority over the men. It's a woman being eavesdropped on by a man. I think that's a different animal than... Yes. Yeah, one of my... Yes. And one of my pet peeves, I don't know how our website does it, so don't hold it against me if it says it wrong, but I don't like it if it says it this way. Pastor Mark and Charity. Because then I'm like, mm, does pastor cover charity? And, and churches do do that to be subtle. So I don't like that. I would rather it say Pastor Mark and his wife charity or something like that that just drives a little bit of distance between. Because there's a church in town that shares our same, well, I guess it is a different zip code. But it's, it's vaguely in that direction where um, the pastor's, the, the wife is a pastor. But the way it says it is like Pastor Mark and charity. But I know she's a pastor, and I'm like, you dog, just own it. You're not doing right, and you're hiding it. But everyone in your church knows. But on your website, you can't see it. And and I, I just, I that subtlety is just nonsense. Well, frankly, the position is nonsense. The subtlety is just hiding the facts so you don't get called on it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, so, so I, I mean, I think there's duplicity involved, just first. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with the situation at Saddleback. But for a while, I think they called them ministers. I mean, they, they just, like, were being a little bit slimy, getting it done without calling it by name what it is. They basically had women pastors, and it wasn't until recently that they kind of came out boldly and said it, and they got they got booted out of the SBC, I believe. Um, so I, I think, again, it's a watershed issue. I think they... In that moment, they raised their flag for cultural acceptability and did so to the dishonor of Christ. I think it was wrong. I think it's sinful because I think it was a disobedient act. I think it makes it hard for all the ladies in the church who are trying to righteously honor God, let's say, and are teaching um, a girls' college class that's for girls because now they're probably perceived to have that same kind of um, equality agenda that I think is that watershed issue. I think men and women of good conscience should leave that church fast because I think that church is leaving Christ fast. Probably what I would say. And um, I have a distance from it, so I, I don't know that personal close hand experience, but it just seems like as soon as you're willing to reject the clear word of God or cultural acceptance, we know we know where your values and your compass is taking you. So it's pretty it's pretty sad. What I would like to do to wrap up is is spend a few moments um, being thankful to the Lord. So.